0: Hey AJ, do you think Mplate and Morbius ever hang out? I mean, after all, they've got a lot in common.
1: Oh, I don't know, Miles. Uh, hands, cannibalism, and inability to carry a successful feature film franchise just don't seem like much of a foundation for friendship.
0: Okay, but check this out. m eats genetic marrow, whatever that is. Right. And Morbius eats plasma, right?
1: I'm gonna have to take your word for that.
0: So they could share victims! It would have the body count! You know, you're you're not wrong. Speaking of Marrow, though, has Emplate ever gone after Marrow the character? Uh, Given his diet, she seems like she'd be irresistible.
1: Not that I know of, but anyway, we don't actually know that Emplate eats bone marrow and not, you know, the marrow of genes. Which is a thing that genes definitely have in the Marvel Universe. But anyway, they've always run in pretty different circles. She
0: does stay busy, what with the universe hopping with Jean Nation, her time in S.H.I.E.L.D., hanging on the Skrull
1: homeworld... Dating Spider-Man... WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did... Welcome to episode 409 of J and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome to—to paraphrase the title of a podcast run by our first producer—welcome to this whole thing. This is gonna be quite the arc we are covering. We are back at Generation X. We are still very near the beginning of Larry Hama's run. And while Al and I were not too impressed with Hama's first issue— Well, how do we even introduce what we're about to talk about, Jay?
1: I still don't know whether it's good, but it's definitely interesting. And that's what we're here for. That
0: is what we're here for. And I feel like, maybe good, maybe not good, but definitely interesting, that's a lot of Larry Hama. That's a lot of Generation X as well.
1: So, speaking of Generation X, you covered some with Al while I was out. Um, catch me up, what's been going on?
0: Okay, so Generation X, who, as you know, are the newest for now generation of Mutant X students, they're doing pretty okay. They survived their teammate Mondo, having turned out to be an evil plant man working for Black Tom Cassidy. Right. They made it past the anti-mutant efforts of Operation Zero Tolerance. Mm Mm-hmm. And now they're back at the new Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters in Snow Valley, Massachusetts. So, well, okay, most of them are doing okay, because after being buried under some rubble in a battle against Prime Sentinels and the aforementioned Operation Zero Tolerance, perfect and arrogant Monet Saint croix a.k.a. M, has now split into two much younger girls.
1: Right. Um, those are Claudette and Nicole, her younger sisters. I was there for that one.
0: Exactly, yeah. So we haven't had too much develop with M, but just to recap for the listeners, here's what we know about her.
1: Now, this was a revelation about M that had been being teased for like two years by the time it finally happened,
0: oh, so long, yeah, we'd seen little breadcrumbs we'd seen that M had traits that corresponded to the 1990s understanding of autism, but only sometimes
1: and the 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 twins being one person is not the only weird thing about her family that's come up in the book because her brother is generation x's first big big badge he's the spiky guy who wears a lot of leather and a gas mask and he's a, a a genetic vampire, whatever that means, uh, named Emplate.
0: Right. So, you were there for all that part. What Al and I covered were the twins recovering from whatever happened at the school, and the other kids settling into Snow Valley and settling into Larry Hama's run. So far, that's mostly consisted of them getting a bunch of their stuff stolen by some local bullies— Not the best start to a story, but it does lead into whatever the hell this is.
1: Which brings us to Generation X number 34, Guilty Secrets.
0: This issue is written, of course, by Larry Hama, penciled by Steve Harris, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Liz Agrafiatis. So this is basically going to be a six-issue story full of so many artists. This book cannot hold down a penciler right now. As for this one, Steve Harris, he's fine. He kind of reminds me of the 90s Terry Dodson, who we'll see some of later. His art's realistic, not overly textured. Occasionally, the perspective does get early Liefeld-style wonky,
1: but that's okay.
0: I like that better in Gen X than I did in New Mutants.
1: You know what else doesn't stand up?
0: Very drunk people?
1: It's gonna say Larry Hama's limericks.
0: <laughs> that's right, because this issue opens up with one of them.
1: There once was a mutant named Emma, who had herself quite a dilemma. Her co-worker Sean had resorted to brawn. His attitude, huh, no problema.
0: Which is followed by...
1: That haughty Hibernian Sean, by no means timid withdrawn, is clueless in spades to Emma's inner tirades he should have snuck in the back before dawn.
0: Because Sean is getting back from having gone to Mirror Island, uh, twice as it turns out, to go see Moira... And Emma decks him with a thwack that sends him like three feet in the air when he gets in.
1: Wasn't that the last thing that he did to her when she was at least allegedly trying to sell penance back to Emplate? Exactly. She was
0: bluffing, Sean didn't buy that she was bluffing, and he knocked her out. He's brought baked goods from the airport as a sort of peace offering, but Emma will have none of it.
1: Don't bring people airport food as a peace offering. I guess maybe if you're flying in or out of PDX, but otherwise, that that's a choice. It's a big choice.
0: Emma agrees with you, saying,
1: Stuff them in your loudest orifice, Sean.
0: Larry Hama writes a slightly different Emma. She's uh, angrier, she's snarkier, but her dialogue is consistently really fun, as is the dialogue of most Larry Hama written characters.
1: I really still want someone to write her with a heavy Boston accent.
0: That's just how she talks in my head.
1: Good. As she ought.
0: So, half the kids come stomping in with good news. They've recovered all the stuff the local bullies stole last issue. Well, okay, not all the stuff. Most of the stuff. Not Jubilee, Husk, or Skins stuff.
1: So, about half the stuff.
0: Uh, I don't know. I mean, they stole Emma's jewelry, and I feel like Emma probably has a lot of jewelry.
1: Right, but like... Wait, they stole all of them as jewelry? Unclear.
0: At least a decent quantity of it.
1: Huh. Wait, so they they didn't just, like, pickpocket the students. They broke into the school.
0: Oh, yeah, somebody forgot to set the alarm, and while everybody was out doing Gen X number 33 stuff, uh, the bullies' minions, Tracy and Eamon, broke in and took basically everything they could get their hands on.
1: Well, shit.
0: This scene is fun. Everybody's talking over each other. All the kids are offering their own, some serious, some not, theories about what's up. They're getting distracted by Sean's dry scones that he brought. This is controlled chaos, and this fits. And I know Larry Hama's Gen X run is not overall particularly well regarded. Certainly the last issue was not very good, but I think he does have a good feel for the way these characters interact with each other. And for me, that's one of the most important things about Gen X.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Gen X is is one of those books that should be defined by a chaotic pileup of characters on the second page.
0: Very much so, yeah. Well, the characters are about to get separated from that pileup because Tracy OTA, that's the local police chief's daughter and one of the thieves that ended up with their stuff, calls, skin picks up, and she says she wants a meeting.
1: So I, I noticed in the outline that she and, she and her buddy... Amen, we're we're working for bullies named Dorian and Weasel.
0: Oh yeah, Dorian and Weasel, they kind of remind me of the bully from uh, that X-Factor Minus One one one-shot, in that they are far older than they should be to still be bullying people, and surprisingly homicidal.
1: The 90s were a different time.
0: The 90s were. I mean, okay, I know that you and I were pretty unpopular, like, we got bullied, But I don't recall anybody ever trying to, like, explode us or beating us nearly to death. I'm not saying that stuff doesn't happen. I'm just saying I'm glad we uh, dodged bullies like Dorian and Weasel and that guy from X-Factor Minus One.
1: Yeah, the college-age kids I hung out with were generally awesome.
0: Somebody dumped me in a garbage can once.
1: Oh, man. Was it it random 20-somethings?
0: Uh, no, no, it was people my own age. I don't know if that makes it better or
1: worse. Probably marginally better.
0: Hmm. Well, at least it didn't try to blow me up, or my family. But anyway, Tracy, who herself is something of a neer do albeit not murderous and not named Weasel, she still has the cowboy hat that Wolverine gave Jubilee, the pistol that Skin hid in a cigar box, and the diary that Husk hid in her hollowed-out calculus textbook.
1: And, and they meet outside the local restaurant, which just has a big sign that says EAT, which takes me to one very specific thing a um, miles i i don't know if 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 you were thinking girl in, in the gold boots here but um i i i cannot shake the idea that there's an icky elf somewhere in that restaurant
0: yep the girl with gold boots as i recall is mike nelson's favorite episode he ever did of mystery science theater 3000 and there's a restaurant with a big sign named eat that the hosts insist therefore must be called eat
1: i i'd really like to think that that's true yep
0: I gotta say though, I live in Portland, Oregon, and if you have a restaurant called Eat around here, it's probably an extremely expensive gastropub.
1: That's a shame. Any restaurant that has a big sign that says Eat should be like a place that's bad enough that it requires the you you to be ordered to do so.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Or, or at least like the only option around, because that that what that sign really indicates is it's food. What more do you want?
0: <laughs> what do you want an award? Well, they don't have to worry about this right now, because they're meeting Tracy outside of EAT, and she offers her terms. She's, she'll give them back their stuff, but she wants to know all their secrets. This is like show-and-tell under blackmail duress.
1: It is very, very show-and-tell. So they start with with um, what she's got of Jubilees, which is a old, beat-up cowboy hat that we know now, thanks to Wolverine Minus One, cut, came from Sabretooth. Um... And Ghibli talks about Wolverine and her history with him, from him losing his adamantium and fatal attractions and leaving behind his hat in a letter when he motorcycles away in the middle of the night to more recently when he saved her from Operation Zero Tolerance, although she does it without, you know, revealing that he's Wolverine or that she's a mutant or any of the details of these events.
0: Yeah, she basically just says he's a real good dude who's helped her out,
1: but she sums it up kind of poignantly. I don't need his old hat to remember him. He's the best friend I ever had in the whole world. But I sure do want it back.
0: And Tracy silently hands the hat to Jubilee, and it's sweet. And in this panel, she's drawn as much smaller than Jubilee. I think she's supposed to be pretty young. And it kind of emphasizes the fact that she's a lot of bark, but she's kind of all bark in some ways. And this whole scene also does emphasize Larry Hama gets each of these characters to greater or lesser extents, but he's been writing Jubilee for a very long time in the Wolverine series. And you can tell, Larry Hama's Jubilee is, I don't know if she's the definitive Jubilee, but she's certainly up there. She's this mix of brashness and vulnerability and sarcasm and sincerity, and that's a hard balance to find. I think Hama does it.
1: I agree. I think he's got a very, very, very good grip on Jubilee. On and a, and a couple of the characters in particular, I think you know, one of the things you see with every writer who comes into a team book is that there will be like a handful of characters who they really just hone in on perfectly. And everyone else they do, you have various levels of adequate on, but there are, there are always a few that really stand out, and Jubilee is definitely Hamas. Totally.
0: As for Skin's gun... He tells a story of his old boss slash girlfriend Torres, who we've met before picking him up back in the day in her lowrider along with their buddy Lupo and taking them into a rival gang's territory. They were just going there to negotiate, but when Lupo handed a pistol to Skin and the rival gang saw, it all went to hell and a bunch of people died. Skin doesn't really say what he did, although we will learn more about this in Wizard Magazine's Generation X number one half. They did a bunch of number one half issues for various comics, not just Marvel ones, including this.
1: God, remember when Wizard Magazine was, like, really powerful?
0: Oh, it was hot shit. I still have their, like, X-Men 30th Anniversary holographic cover issue somewhere.
1: I just... It's so weird not only that it used to exist, but that it used to, you know, be, like, the be-all, end-all voice of this superhero end of the comics industry.
0: Wizard Magazine and Nintendo Power were my twin Bibles at the time.
1: Wizard Power and Nintendo Magazine.
0: (laughs) yup. What we do find out here is that Skin faked his death after that, which we already know, and that he broke the gun. He disabled it. He just keeps it as a reminder of his old life.
1: And of what he doesn't want to go back to. And that brings us to kind of the best of the batch, which is Husk's diary.
0: Yes. Tracy figures this must be fantasy. All these stories of other-dimensional mutant cannibals and giant flying robots. And... We get to see in the art behind her kind of her version of what this probably looks like. We see this enormous scaly brood-like creature with these nipple tentacles, like, lowering these tiny children into its enormous toothy mouth. And we see this Decepticon-looking robot shooting lasers out of its eyes. Those are supposed to be M-Plate and the Sentinels, and really, I think M-Plate and the Sentinels should take a fashion
1: cue from these things. Tracy's take on this is, is yeah. we've talked about Larry Hama dialogue, and boy, does she get some. Things can't be that dull
0: at that musty old school that you have to make up such lurid malarkey. What teens said malarkey in the 1990s? Let alone lurid malarkey! Oh, Larry Hama, you should be able to decide how everyone in the world talks.
1: Maybe this is why Tracy needs to blackmail people into being friends with her.
0: (laughs) Because saying phrases like lurid malarkey uh, does not endear you to the local popular kids? I think it should.
1: Oh, it absolutely should. Like, that should be one of the grounds for being one of the popular kids. I would be Tracy's friend.
0: I would appreciate it if she didn't steal all my stuff, though.
1: I would, I would be hesitantly interested in friendship with her based on her vocabulary, at least. It's a start. But what we get a particularly vivid image of is, is how um, Tracy pictures Chamber based on Page's diary's description of him. He stared
0: at me with eyes that are like the mirrors of my own longing. He has no voice for what he feels for me. His lips are the stuff of stars and galaxies, his tongue a cosmic whisper. I ache for the wholeness that cannot be. My ears strain for the unspoken words that lurk beneath his marble brow, his testament of undying love.
1: Lurid malarkey indeed.
0: It's so good, and Husk looks just so goddamn mortified at this, and of course she's with Skin and Jubilee, probably the two members of Gen X most inclined to give her shit.
1: Yeah, she is never, ever, ever gonna hear the end of this.
0: It's so good. I have come to love Paige Guthrie so goddamn much. Like, she's just such a mix of of dorky and uh, earnest and, like, genuinely competent. She's so much fun. It- makes me a little sad that she got crammed into that weird Romeo and Juliet Chuck Austin story later and then ended up losing her mind and dating Toad for a while. Although Toad was pretty nice at that point.
1: Yeah, that, that got pretty weird pretty hard. Yeah,
0: yeah, Husky needs some redemption.
1: So Tracy not only has the diary, she has photocopied the entire thing. It cost her something like $27 and quarters, but she has, she has a working copy of it. So she'll give Paige back the diary, but she's still got blackmail material.
0: And so what she wants in exchange for not exposing everybody is to be their friend. Which is really sweet and sad. I I kinda feel bad for this kid. She's got such wonderful vocabulary, but she has no
1: friends. I mean, she's got amen, her her burglar body.
0: Well, that's true. I, I get I get the impression that they're more like coworkers getting coerced into doing terrible things by the murder bullies.
1: So so like any coworkers in a capitalist state.
0: <laughs> yup. But this works. We just get such a good picture of these characters. There's Jubilee as rebellious but sincere, Skin as haunted and closed off, Husk as this hopeless romantic who desperately wants to be taken seriously. I would say all three of these characters Hama is handling
1: expertly. Husk's diary is is just so, so perfect. It is so very, very, very Paige Guthrie.
0: It is, and I love Tracy's vision of what Chamber must look like based on this. He looks like he's in a freaking boy band.
1: Which, Chamber kind of does look like if you disregard the fact that he's missing, you know, the bottom half of his face and neck and chest.
0: Hey, hey, as we learned, his tongue is a cosmic whisper.
1: Here's the real tragedy of Paige Guthrie. Mm-hmm. The real tragedy of Paige Guthrie is that she came of age before Tumblr. Oh, she would be a perfect Tumblr kid. You're totally right. Like, AO3, Paige Guthrie... If she had been a contemporary teenager to her, would have been, like, really, really good friends with Kamala Khan.
0: Yeah. Kamala would be getting her into trouble, and Paige would be trying to keep Kamala on the straight and narrow, and they would just nerd the fuck out.
1: Paige would be writing fanfiction about the X-Men while attempting to become one.
0: <laughs> that seems right. Like that fanfiction that's just 75 chapters long and thousands and thousands and thousands of words.
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And it would be niche to the point that very, very few people would read it and enjoy it.
0: But the ones that did. Also, I'm pretty sure she would write her own wiki for her own fanfiction.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. that That is unquestionable.
0: Anyway, meanwhile, in A Reality Adjacent to Our Own. So this is Mplate's reality, and this never gets a numerical reality designation, and I love that. It's just this weird sideways sub ...thing that doesn't make any sense that he's stuck in most of the time.
1: It's almost a pocket more than a reality.
0: It is, yeah. Which is probably part of why he doesn't like being there. So, in the last issue, we saw that a villain named Chimera showed up to offer m a deal... Chimera is a blonde lady in basically dominatrix gear, and she's hanging out with some fully leather-covered plasma wraith ladies. Like, the only part you can see of them are the eyes, which are escaping, like, plasma gas coming out. Cool. She is pretty cool looking. So, we've seen her before. Not in any books we've covered, though. She was in Wolverine for a little bit. The Marvel database describes her as, quote, "...an interdimensional pirate of questionable sanity." She lived to plunder the space-time continuum and traveled with plasma wraiths, super-strong, half-starved creatures wrapped in black bandages with sharp claws. She's telepathic. She can create these ectoplasmic slash telekinetic dragons, which Logan at one point describes as sock puppets from hell. (laughs) Pretty great. A little more on her later once we talk about her not exactly partner. But for now, she has a lepton imploder, which will help M-plate escape his little pocket dimension
1: i know leptons are subatomic particles but that's that's about where my my lepton literacy lies
0: ooh alliteration So I looked it up, and I understand it about maybe 1% more. Apparently, uh, yes, leptons are elementary particles of half-integer spin that don't undergo strong interactions. Uh, Leptons and quarks are the two types of fermions, and the most well-known lepton is the electron. So I hope people feel very slightly more educated. This is a confusing, large topic.
1: Imploding a lepton doesn't really seem like it would tear through reality though
0: larry hama very specific and scientific about aircraft much less so about everything else
1: so what if you implode a lepton on a lockheed sr-71
0: i bet larry hama would know exactly what would happen so as for chimera's personality well she's wacky and very amoral she's basically a mercenary in her first appearance when she fought Logan and Jean in the Landau, Luckman & Lake headquarters outside of space-time, she had a conversation with her hand about what to do. She said,
1: "Oh, little Wogan doesn't want to play. And her hand
0: replied, Suck out this
1: spine, chimera!
0: To which she said,
1: Mustn't wash things, no, no, no. So she actually
0: doesn't talk in baby talk most of the time, but I feel like that gets the picture across. And she's an odd duck that hangs out with an odd rat. That being a rat with a smiley face on its butt named Dirtnap. We'll talk more about him later. Anyway, they fought Wolverine in the 90s of his own series. They were working for Genesis... That is Tyler, Cable's shitty son. They were members of his Dark Riders, and their goal was to capture Logan to try to bond the adamantium taken from the murdered cyber with Logan's skeleton so he could be re-adamantiumed and could then be Tyler's horseman. Uh, they also teamed up to fight Logan and Venom in the Venom Tooth and Claw miniseries. So they've been around for a bit. I don't know that there's much continuity you need to know about them, but they're just clearly villains Larry Hama likes a lot. They're kind of the Roughhouse and Blood Scream of his Wolverine run.
1: I miss Roughhouse and Blood Scream. They were a good power couple. I mean, they weren't. They were an evil power couple, but you get the idea.
0: I think they come back later, but they're never as much fun. Really, the highlight was when Blood Scream was a ghost pirate captain.
1: God, that was such a good choice. Anyway, Chimera, and presumably also Chimera's hand, use the lepton imploder to rip a hole in reality, and she and her wraiths and M-plate all head into the school.
0: And they start kicking everybody's asses, because they are very powerful and the kids are very surprised. Fortunately, the twins, previously mostly unconscious, wake up and merge back into Monet, back into the teenage M that we've known for most of the series.
1: Who then slams herself into M plate, merging with him, because apparently this is what members of the Sanquaa family can do. Um, and, and the result of this is an individual whose name is M plate, but it's M hyphen, the letter M hyphen plate.
0: See, I was thinking M dash plate, but then that just makes me think of M dashes, like the double width dashes that as I recall, a professor told you you had already l- used up your lifetime supply of back in college.
1: Yeah, but I stole some more, so I'm in good shape.
0: Excellent. Well, so did this creature. But M Plate is fucking cool looking. They're this tall, lanky, spiky haired androgynous person in fitted armor, just covered in tubes and plates. They really do look like a cross between M Plate and M, and they are scary as shit.
1: They also make me really sad. Why is that? Because Chris Bacello isn't drawing them. This is a design Chris Picello should be drawing.
0: God, it really is. And yeah, I don't know if Chris Picello ever drew M-Plate. I mean, maybe as like a convention
1: piece or something? For fun? In in his copious free time? No, I, I assume he's a very, very busy individual.
0: If I were to commission a Chris Picello picture, oh boy, there would be about a hundred things I would want, but this would be one of them.
1: Which brings us to Generation X, number thirty-five, Pool of Tears, written by Larry Hama, penciled by Jason Johnson, inked by Edwin Rosell, Sean Parsons, and Vince Russell, colored by Chris Sotomayor, sorry, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Liz Grafiadis. So, our
0: penciler of the issue this time, like you said, is Jason Johnson. Jason has this sort of '90s MTV style of cartooning like everyone has these caricatured features these exaggerated angles and poses but it's not that unrealistic it's not like ren and stimpy style mtv Uh, apparently he was a protege of jim lee and did a lot of work at uh in wildstorm for jim in the 90s
1: i can see that so as all hell breaks loose inside the the school skin jubilee and husk of course show up at just that moment with tracy Skin cracks the door open, sees what's up, pops in, and locks it behind him, uh, leaving the other three outside to bang on the door and wonder what the hell is going on.
0: And after Chimera bodily throws Banshee through a window outside, Paige and Jubilee make up some story about physics experiments and decide to take Tracy, you know, elsewhere.
1: They take her to see the biosphere, which turns out to mean leaving her there alone while they go to join the fight.
0: And as a reminder, the Biosphere, a.k.a. the Danger Grotto, is the more botanical equivalent of the Danger Room that Gen X has. Like,
1: it's it's like the worst possible place to leave your fairly hapless human friend.
0: It's not great, especially because the Gen X kids were there for Wolverine number 94. We'll get to that. There's something genuinely fun about this life-or-death battle going on inside the school— and Jubilee is just trying to casually distract this normal kid from seeing what's up. It's entertaining.
1: I really, really appreciate that as a running gag with ex-teenager books. Like, that there's some normal person, and there's shit going on in the background that someone is trying to just steer them around. Yup. And meanwhile, inside, the the fight is fighting away, and I kind of like Larry Hama's battle dialogue. Like, I again, I know folks are rough on, on his... Run, but like, and okay, some of this is ridiculous, some of it is genuinely ridiculous, but I like the places he goes with the characters' voices in context of a fight, because like those one-liners and one-offs in battle are, again, sort of a a telling detail in when new writers come onto books. So Sink, for instance, absorbs Skin's powers and uses his newly extensible Skin to, to wrap up a plasma wraith, at which point he says,
0: Okay, leather lady, you think you're all wrapped up now? Wait until you've been digitized.
1: Okay, that's really bad, actually. Yeah, but Sync's
0: a big dork, so it kind of works. And Jubilee attacks M-Plate with her powers to save Sync later on, saying,
1: How's about the patented Jubilation Lee over-the-top ultra-concentrated Sunday Punch Megapath?
0: She should call it that all the time. But it's not just the kids that are fun, and it's not just the writing that's fun about everyone. At one point, m Play turns their head around 180 degrees to explain their new nature to Chimera. Like, just when you think the character's creepy, then they start behaving even less like a human. And at one point, they distort reality around the heroes, and so the school staircase just spirals down into this rubble-strewn oblivion and this giant, like, whirlwind portal of unreality, It's great.
1: Now, M-Plate also represents a pretty significant conundrum for the heroes, because they need to figure out how to stop them without also harming Monet, who is also the twins.
0: Some of them are about to give up, but Skin won't have it.
1: Skin, for instance, thinks that they should find a way to rescue M from within M-Plate.
0: That thing has somebody we know and love inside it anyway, you cut it. Jubilee questions. Love? Well, we know her real good.
1: And M-Plate is similarly conflicted, because M-Plate had a deal with Chimera, but M had a relationship with the Gen X kids. And M-Plate finally comes to a conclusion.
0: We have our own agenda now. We We are are more than than the sum of our parts. Just as M was more than than the sum of the twins.
1: The battle still appears prepared to rage on, but it's simplified when DOA, who's M-Plate's assistant and chauffeur, shows up. Um, and M-Plate makes quick work of the team and heads off with DOA, Chimera, and a captive Sink, whom she claims will fulfill her quote-unquote needs.
0: Less creepy than it sounds, we'll find.
1: But not before knocking Jubilee for a loop and into an Alice in Wonderland-inspired maybe-dream sequence? With the twins as Tweedledee and Tweedledum, Banshee as the walrus, and everyone else as varyingly appropriate characters. Is this a dream? What the hell is happening?
0: Oh, it's this whole freaking thing. It is six pages where there are those characters, their skin is the Mad Hatter, Husk is the Marsh Hare, Sink is the Dormouse, Emma is the Red Queen, Gateway is the Caterpillar, and it's basically just Jubilee in this chaos dimension based on Alice in Wonderland. She's trying to figure out what to do, like, where... M really is where sync has been taken and so Tweedledee and Tweedledum the twin girls they just keep pulling off their heads to reveal M plate's head and then pulling tho- that head off to reveal M's head and then their own heads and eventually they're just standing on top of this pile of discarded severed heads this is prime madness
1: and the vision ends as they are just starting to pull off Jubilee's head revealing something sinister lowercase sinister lurking Beneath it, But just then Jubilee wakes up on the lawn, and there's a scream from the biosphere. So everyone rushes there, and there's no sign of Tracy nor of Artie and Leech, who usually live there. Um, we just get one portentous line from Emma. It's back. Yeah. So that
0: Wonderland sequence, I feel like that's emblematic of this entire run, because, spoiler listeners, it's just gonna get weirder. Is there a reason for it? I don't know. Is it fun? Yes. Is it creepy? Actually, also, yes. It's genuinely creepy. That head thing kind of freaked me
1: out. Probably because it makes me think of the crazy gang. It gives me a little bit of early Excalibur vibes.
0: You are not wrong. Yeah, th- that's true because they were- Really, this whole story. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's not a bad association right there. Like, it's a, it's a surprising one, but I'll take it. But that said, talking about the Wonderland parallels, we mentioned all the characters who were all the different Wonderland characters, but, like, Chamber isn't there. Who would Chamber be if he was in Wonderland?
1: Can I be a dick and say the Cheshire Cat?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Although, if that smile was just this big burst of psionic face energy, that that would look pretty cool.
1: And if if it just, you know, grew to just subsume him and he disappeared in it, that's actually a very Chamber move, so...
0: Oh, that is. Okay, yeah, you're totally right. I'm I'm on board. I'm sad they didn't include that. I guess that would have made it seven pages instead of the already unnecessary six.
1: Seven? Hell, it would have been at least a dozen with that.
0: <laughs> that brings us to Generation X number 36, Strange Doings.
1: Boy, are they.
0: This issue is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Andy Smith, inked by Walden Wong, colored by Mike Rockwitz, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and once again, Liz Agrafiatis. And uh yep, we're uh three pencilers and three issues. Smith is more standardly comic booky. Um his art is fine. Like it's not uh remarkable in any specific direction in that it's kind of house style,
1: but I have no complaints. So Emma's it's back is a reference to the thing that has apparently taken Tracy, which is something called the Token. What what the hell is the token?
0: Oh boy, so Larry Hama, as we've seen, is really mining his own Wolverine continuity for his Gen X run. Chimera is from that, Nap, who we mentioned and will show up in a little bit, is from that, and The Token is from that. Specifically, from an issue of Wolverine, he wrote, set at the Xavier School in Massachusetts. So that was number 94, and in it, Jubilee had asked for Wolverine to come by because she missed him. This was while he was kind of animalistic, although he had a nose again by this point, I think. And so he did. He actually walked all the way there from New York because he doesn't like technology at this point while he's feral. And during that, as he was tutoring the kids in combat in the Danger Grotto, he ran into and fought a psychic entity called a token, and then left. At the end of the issue, the kids were understandably confused, as was I, the reader, and so it was up to Banshee to explain a bit of what happened, he said.
1: A token is a wraith of the dead, or worse still, of the living.
0: And apparently, Logan got it to leave.
1: By being there, the token cannot abide its own kind.
0: Banshee also uses the term puka for the token, or possibly for Logan himself, it's unclear in that issue. A puka is a Celtic animal shape-changer that could bring good luck or bad luck. It's also one of the playable kits in White Wolf Games' RPG Changeling the Dreaming.
1: And that's going to become even more confusing in context of this issue because it's going to introduce another creature that calls itself a puka as distinct from the token, which is itself at this point a sort of translucent spectral bird-faced shadow.
0: So if our explanation was unclear, um, for once, I will not take responsibility for that. Wolverine number 94 was unclear. I don't know that it had a plot so much as a series of events and then was just over. But there's a token. It's taken Tracy from the Danger Grotto. They had thought Wolverine had banished it. Apparently they hadn't. The token is still around. And here we are.
1: And the team and their leaders decide that the thing to do at this point is to split up and find Tracy real quick before they try to rescue Sink from M- Plate. So
0: first, Banshee, Husk, and Penance head off. And Banshee's a bit miffed that Husk wants to be with Emma.
1: Especially seeing as the bloody thing is a Celtic weirdland beastie.
0: And Husk, perhaps distracted by this, trips over a four-foot-wide, three-toed footprint.
1: As do Emma and Skin, whom they run into... Stripping over footprints.
0: But there's no time to investigate that because Chief OTA, the local police chief, and Tracy's dad shows up with a freshly shot rat with a smiley face on his butt.
1: Aw, he's like a friendly outdoor cat. He brought them a gift.
0: It's real weird. Like, you go to find your daughter at a school and you just proudly hold out a giant dead rat that you just shot? And he's like, yeah, I hope it's not anyone's pet. That is a good hope to have! Uh, Yeah, so OTA heard from the local bullies that his daughter was probably here, and so he investigates. He just looks around, not noticing the giant dinosaur footprint, and heads into Artie and Leech's treehouse. And inside, unbeknownst to OTA, are Tracy, Artie, and Leech, bound with energy shackles and the token lurking inside.
1: It turns out, or we'll find out shortly after, that the rat was playing possum. Um, as Banshee fishes him out of the trash, this is Dirtnap, and he was holding Chimera's lepton imploder and tells them how to use it to find Sink. So wait, who is Dirt Nap again?
0: Yeah, so we mentioned Dirtnap briefly, talking about how he was an ally of Chimera's. His deal is that he can absorb and then become people. He kind of eats them with his giant mouth that just grows out of his midsection. And you can tell if somebody is really Dirtnap because they'll look like themselves, but they'll always be wearing a gray t-shirt with a red smiley face. Or the equivalent, this is a gray rat with a red smiley face on its butt.
1: No, that's a yellow smiley face on the rat.
0: Well, then it's miscolored.
1: In his first appearance, I believe he was hassling Logan on the street.
0: Dirtnap got all sorts of action. He got mind expansion and stupefaction. He got fun and games and taking down names. He got bumping in the dark and slumping in the park.
1: I believe he tried to absorb Wolverine at that point, and he couldn't because of Wolverine's healing factor, which is when he escaped by basically jumping to the rat.
0: Uh, Yes, that's right. He unfortunately doesn't talk that way anymore as he did in his first appearance, which is a little sad, but what can you do? Anyway, that's what this crowd is up to. What about Chamber and Jubilee? Because they get up to some
1: stuff. Right, so Chamber and Jubilee's hunt for their missing friend, kind of is waylaid when a giant hedge maze pops up in front of them. And therein they find a puka or something calling itself a puka, in this case a cartoon ferret man wearing a tweed sport coat and drinking a martini. This is Elwood. Elwood the
0: puka. He is mock-offended when Chamber references the invisible rabbit puka from the 1950 Jimmy Stewart movie,
1: Harvey, and then offers them a ride at his bumper car. The bumper car, as it turns out, is the source of the giant footprints the other folks have seen. It's, it's, it doesn't have wheels, it bounces on a giant spring with a four-foot-wide, three-toed foot at the base. And he used it to lead the others to the token, although he can't directly interfere with the token due to union rules.
0: That is the United Brotherhood of Elves, Fairies, Spirits, Gnomes, Trolls, Tokens, and Pukas, Local 607. Which made me guffaw literally aloud when I read it.
1: Not, you will notice, leprechauns.
0: Uh, no, fuck leprechauns, because Scott Lobdell ruined everything about them in his Gen X arc. I apologize to any leprechauns listening to this show.
1: So, with with Banshee and Emma and, and the students with them now officially on the Tokens Trail, Jubilee and Chamber and, I guess, Elwood are free to go save Sync. So,
0: into a space-time warp, they bounce in their bouncy, Godzilla-footed bumper car through the suddenly-watermelon-striped sky. This story wasn't particularly on the rails to start, but boy howdy, is it not now. Yeah, we are halfway to
1: rutabaga country here.
0: They land in a parking spot in midtown Manhattan, which does seem way easier than parallel parking. I'm terrible at parallel parking, I should warp more.
1: I mean, I straight up refuse to drive in midtown Manhattan, so...
0: That's probably the better answer. Our heroes run into a foursome named Polly, Darren, Bunch, and Marie, and I feel like these are supposed to be specific people. Like, often when this happens, it's Marvel creators that are being drawn and written into a book, so I was thinking maybe Marie was Marie Javins, but she doesn't seem to look anything like Marie Javins. I don't know. Listeners, if you know who these characters are, or if you are one of them, let us know.
1: These characters are at least enough in the know to direct Jubilee and Chamber, Um, They're. Elwood has disappeared at least temporarily to Landau Luckman and Lake where they can find allegedly anything we should probably
0: recap what the hell Landau Luckman and Lake is huh
1: yeah what the hell is Landau Luckman and Lake no I'm sorry they're they're an interdim- they're, they're an interdimensional law firm
0: yeah or sometimes interdimensional financiers but yeah there's this they're this business that just happens to operate at not the but a nexus of realities wolverine's been wandering through their portals in their offices recently in his own book along with a woman named zoe culloden who goes by the expediter uh that's in fact where he first met chimera through one of those portals hey landau luckman lake is weird they also seem to travel through time like they've been around since early early in history and logan's been involved with them since then they don't feature too heavily in here but uh yes in the characters go past the destruction in the Land of Luckman and Lake offices that happen in the Venom vs. Wolverine mini, and through a door marked WC, you know, Water Closet, the abbreviation often used to show a bathroom door. And that's a door we've seen before. That was the door in Mplate's dimension that suddenly appeared and Chimera came through.
1: Oh, shit, so this is a door straight to Mplate.
0: So it would seem, or at least into the multi-dimensional soup. Chamber's pretty skeptical about going in there.
1: I'm not following a gin-soaked cartoon into a loo that glows in the dark. Mm, fair
0: enough, but it's the
1: only path. Like, would you rather follow a gin-soaked cartoon into a loo that doesn't glow in the dark?
0: At least if it glows in the dark, you can see what not to step in.
1: Exactly.
0: Well, I guess Chamber must be distracted by the fact that his tongue is a cosmic whisper.
1: We're never, never gonna let that die, are we?
0: Oh god, never. It's gonna be right up there with Shaddy Buns. So, where is Sink having been captured by M-Plate right now?
1: Sync is somewhere in a three-mooned wasteland full of weird dinosaurs, and he's riding in a tank along with M-Plate, Chimera, DOA, and the Plasma Wraiths toward an evil, spiky Techno Castle, and the Techno Castle we learn, is the Citadel at the Edge of Reality. What a good name.
0: Yeah, right? And the thing that lies within has a pretty good name, too. That is the Universal Amalgamator. Which creates a
1: DC-Marvel crossover.
0: In this case, no. This one would allow M-Plate to merge all consciousness into one, which is pretty on-brand for M-Plate. So, uh, yes, that's where we'll leave off with various interdimensional travel and pukas and giant castles and universal amalgamators and random dinosaurs. And what is Larry Hama
1: doing with this book, Jay? I kind of love it, I think. I cannot answer that question. And so I think maybe we should jump to some that we can answer from our listeners. Trish asks on Tumblr. I just read the original Magic miniseries, and it got me thinking. If they were to adapt this story today into a film or TV miniseries, are there any changes you'd want to see as part of that?
0: Well, that's a good question, and I think if you're going to adapt a story, this could be a pretty good one. Yeah, agreed. I have a few answers about specifics, but uh, Jay, what do you think? Do you have any uh, general takes on it?
1: Well, in general, I think it would need significant structural adaptation to work as as film, um, or as a TV series. And that's that's going to be true, really, of any good adaptation. Any any good adaptation is going to be native to its its new medium in ways that, that kind of preclude exact translation, if that makes sense.
0: Totally agreed.
1: You'd want a TV series that was as native to TV as the comic is to comic, and that's going to involve also an update in, sen- in, yes, in some of the sensibilities, some of the language, some of the ideas, because, again, yeah, that series came out decades ago and where things are culturally and aesthetically and narratively and you know the 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 ways in which stories are being told in television now is very different from what it was then
0: 100% yeah uh, i think specifically you would need to decide how to handle the abuse and oh god the discourse around this word right now but it is the accurate word the grooming metaphor where Belasco does those things to Ilyana, it's a difficult line to walk. I actually think the New Mutants movie handled that pretty well in terms of making it clear what was up, but also keeping it as kind of a creepy metaphor, not in a way that detracted. I think you'd also need to show a little more of what initially happened to the versions of the X-Men that followed young Ilyana Il- young through the portal into Limbo. In the context of the comic, everyone who read that miniseries was presumably familiar with the X-Men. If you're doing this as an adaptation, that's not necessarily going to be the case— you would need to see the versions of the characters before corruption or death and after. That would make it more tragic. And it would also make the ongoing question of whether Storm was going to survive that much
1: weightier. The more I think about this, the more I love the idea of the magic miniseries as a miniseries TV adaptation. Because thinking about the stuff that's worked well in adaptations, the the sort of flawed masterpieces that were that were gifted, that were Legion. I feel like it's enough of a genre jump that it would fit well in in that sort of odd pairing or that that odd grouping. And there are a lot of tools from those shows that you could reincorporate into this one.
0: 100%. Completely agreed. Devin asks via email, This may be a bit of a spoilerific question, but what has been your favorite new villain from the Krakoa era? On a related subject, what's been your favorite alignment shift that's happened since the era started? And I will say, we're not going to talk about anything that just happened, but we are going to talk about stuff within the last couple of years. So if you're not current and care about spoilers, then A, I don't know how you live on the internet at all. And B, you could probably stop the episode here. We'll tell you we're doing more Gen X next time. But if you're interested, go for it, Jay.
1: Okay. So I am a full-time graduate student who also works and has a, has a four-month-old. Um, I am way behind on Almost everything. The only title I am remotely close to caught up on is Immortal X-Men, so I'm gonna have to go with a character who isn't a new villain, but whose villainy has definitely gotten more complex. That being Mr. Sinister.
0: Oh, Sinister is so good right now. I still remember Jonathan Hickman saying that part of how he engineered the line was making sure that Kieran Gillen could write Mr. Sinister again.
1: That is a really, really, really good thing to engineer a comic's line towards.
0: Right. Uh, so I am current. Um,
1: so if I
0: had to pick a favorite villain, oh, that's hard. I really did like the Swordbearers of Erico from X of Swords.
1: Are they villains, though? They're more antagonists. I guess
0: they are more antagonists, yeah. I mean, I think my favorite is probably Solemn just because he's a really fun foil for Wolverine. He's this self-obsessed, amoral, expressive guy, whereas Logan is, is none of those things. But yeah, if we're going for actual villains, I mean, even these are kind of sympathetic, but I love Horticulture, so much. Merciless, but like, for real, old lady eco-terrorist villains, they're so much fun!
1: I I feel like this is an extension of loving the triplets of Belleville.
0: Uh, Yes, they are very triplets of Belleville-like characters, just, you know, more evil. But still lovable. As for alignment shift stuff, I mean, as horrific as it's gotten, god especially very recently— Beast has been fascinating. I am really, really wondering where this is all going to end up. I have my theories. I've been discussing them with some friends. We'll see. And, of course, it was also amazing better getting to know Apocalypse in the context of his newly retcon history and relationship with the heroes. His dynamic with Richter especially was really great. The- yeah,
1: that was really cool.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, but I think an underappreciated one, simply because she has mostly been in an online-only comic, X-Men Unlimited, which has been stellar— is Nature Girl. She's become such an effective, horrifying, but also somewhat sympathetic, straight-up, evil, evil villain. I am loving the way she's been handled. And with that...
1: Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at ExplainTheXMen.com.
1: Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for visual companions to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps.
1: Next week, we wrap up the M-Plate saga. But not before it gets even weirder so much weirder.